This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network's New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm honored to be in dialogue with Brian Pitts. He is Assistant Director of the Latin American Institute at the University of California, Los Angeles. Today, we'll be discussing his newly published book, Until the Storm Passes, Politicians, Democracy, and the Demise of Brazil's Military Dictatorship, published by University of California Press, 2023. Brian, it's an honor to be in conversation with you today. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Yeah, so pretty much all of my scholarship all of my graduate education um, is focused on Latin America. I mean, I, I did my master's in Latin American studies and my PhD in Latin American history. And like the reason I got interested in Latin America, as opposed to some other region of the world, including you know the United States where I'm from, um, is because I lived in Latin America as a child. Um, my parents were actually missionaries in Bolivia for three years. Um, and so I lived there from the time I was nine years old to the time I was 12 years old. Um, in an Aymara speaking town that was four hours from uh, the post office, three hours from a paved road, and two hours from a telephone. Um, and though, although my family was there for um, religious reasons, and um, our own politics at the time were certainly very different from what mine are today, mm-hmm. um, there were certain things I couldn't help but noticing while I was growing up there. And that was that in these indigenous communities where my parents worked, um, it was very clear the ways in which um, racism and um, structural injustice um, had led to some of the crushing poverty that we saw among indigenous people in Bolivia. And so from a very early age, like I recognized that very different from, you know, what I would hear politically in the United States from people who my family agreed with, you know, pull, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, um, you know, if, if you're poor, it's because, you know, either you didn't pray hard enough, or you didn't work hard enough. Um, I knew that wasn't true from having lived in Bolivia as a child. Um, 
know, I knew that structural injustice was a thing, even if I didn't have the language to articulate it yet. Um, and so my interest in Latin America was all it was informed, sure, by my childhood experience of living there, but also very early on from a recognition of um, these structural injustices that are so present there, and then also thinking about how those might be present in my own country as well, how things like the American dream might not be as true as people think it is, for example. What inspires you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So I got interested in um, this particular topic to kind of a roundabout way. Um, I had written a master's thesis on religion in the Syrian Lebanese community in Sao Paulo, um, the ways that Eastern Orthodox Church and um, uh, and um, Melkite and Maronite Catholic churches um, play important roles in the maintenance of cultural identity among um, the descendants of Syrian Lebanese immigrants in Sao Paulo. Um, when I started my PhD program, my advisor suggested that I should um, perhaps um, look into the most famous um, Lebanese Brazilian of all, a politician by the name of Paulo Malofi, um, who comes up in um, my book. Um, he was a politician who was allied with the military dictatorship, um, but his presidential candidacy in 1985 is what ultimately wound up being the death knell for the regime when um, many of um, politicians in the military allied party defected to support an opposition candidate because they couldn't stand the guy. Um, and so um, that started with this kind of a study of this guy, Malufi, which turned into sort of a study of um, regime allied politicians under the dictatorship, which turned into this bigger project, which is um, the way that um, civilian politicians attitudes towards democracy changed during the dictatorship. And after I defended my dissertation, which was in 2013, um, you know, initially, especially friends in Brazil would ask me, like, why are you studying these politicians? You know, like, we don't like them. You know, why don't you study, you know, uh, the leftist guerrillas who fought against the dictatorship. And you know, other than the fact there are probably more biographies of leftist guerrillas than there actually were leftist guerrillas, um, you know, I, I'd say, yeah, because like civilian political leaders are important, right? They wield a lot of power. And then in 2016 in Brazil, when Joma Josefi, the left-wing president, um, was impeached under very um, well, spurious charges, I would say, um, removed from office and replaced with a president that immediately started uh, you know, started implementing um, you know neoliberal reforms. You know, selling off Brazil's um, petroleum reserves to foreign companies. Um, it became very clear once again that like these civilian political elites really mattered, and the extent to which they um, were on board with democracy and popular participation, or the extent to which they pulled away from it, um, were really important to Brazilian democracy and could change the course of a nation in an, in an instant. Um, so I think that the importance of the book. Um, or the importance of the project really emerged at the point when I was turning turning it from a dissertation into a book. And so the um, the book itself is really very much connected to contemporary Brazilian politics and thinking about like, what are the conditions that lead Brazilians, Brazil's political elite um, to, su to support not just democracy, but a form of democracy in which there's a significant role for people other than themselves, especially the working classes. Um, and then what are the situations in which kind of they, they pull back on that support? And that's been really important in Brazilian politics, starting in 2016 through the Bolsonaro presidency and Bolsonaro's attempts to overturn the 2022 election results that ultimately failed in large measure because the civilian political elite um, wouldn't get on board with it. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? So the book tells the story of um, basically how we got to the Brazilian democracy that we have today. 
um, prior to 1985, when the military dictatorship fell, um, you know, Brazil had, had moment, well, really one moment between 1945 and 64 of anything approaching a democratic system. Um, but even then, um, it was extremely restricted because people who couldn't read and write were excluded from voting. And that was a significant proportion of the population. Um, as well as um, sort of the, the power of local political bosses really um, made a dent in Brazil's um, democratic credentials. Um, and so it was really during the military dictatorship um, when the conditions were created that would enable Brazil to become um, a democracy that in many senses is more participatory than that which we have in the United States, if we can even call our system here a democracy anymore. Um, you know, Brazil has all sorts of mechanisms to enable um, it has many more mechanisms, I would say, to both safeguard and to facilitate um, a voice for ordinary people in politics. One of the most famous things in the 1990s was um, participatory budgeting, where you know neighborhood associations were invited to help um, to, uh, to help set municipal budgets. Um, so many things like that that um, Brazil has put in place that have really, in many senses, brought it ahead of the United States democratically. Um, and so, thinking about how Brazil got from being a country that um, was dominated by a very few people, the ones who I study, um, into one that is, um, you know, a country that now has a lot of social rights and a country that has a lot of, um, a lot of democratic mechanisms that um, we lack in other countries, especially the one that I'm from. Um, so I guess that's kind of the message of the book in a nutshell. What does your title mean? Why did you choose the title Until the Storm Passes? What does it signify? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of times, especially I think among um, in my own field among historians, there's this kind of um, when we look at sort of the role that people can make can have in changing the course of history or even changing their own circumstances. Um, there's this real focus on resistance, right? So say we study, um, you know, we study slavery during the colonial period in Brazil. How did people resist? How did they fight back? Right. And resistance is, you know, imagine, you know, that, you know, there was a slave revolt, for example, and that was a form of resistance. Um, but of course, there are other ways that people have of dealing with um, of dealing with injustice or with marginalization. Right. And so um, the way that civilian politicians in Brazil responded to the dictatorship wasn't, you know, they weren't taking up arms against it like leftist guerrillas did. Um, in many cases, they weren't even forcefully denouncing the military. Um, Instead, you know, when they did resist, it was because they were upset that the military had impinged upon their traditional prerogatives, um, that they, you know, the military didn't trust them and had taken away a lot of their power, um, that um, their children in the student movement were being repressed by the police. Um, you know, those were kind of motivations that they had, but it wasn't this like really sort of frontal opposition a lot of times, um, which is why the title of the dissertation was The Inadvertent Opposition. Um, but Until Storm Passes came from this one particular conversation in, I want to say it was 1973 or so, um, between a very young politician who had just been elected to Congress and was like very enthusiastic about, you know, um, about forcefully denouncing the dictatorship's um, assaults on democracy. And this older politician, um, who would later be elected president in 1985, Tancredo Neves, and um he told the other one, he said, look, he said, he said, don't put your chest on the tip of the bayonet. He said, instead, be like the man of the be like the man of the countryside when it start when it starts to when it starts to rain. Shelter under the tree and wait for the storm to pass. You know, setting aside the fact that getting under a tree is not the best thing to do during a thunderstorm because you might be struck by lightning. Um, what he meant was that you know the best thing to do was not necessarily to fight back forcefully. It was to bide your time 
and to you know work quietly to wait for things to change. And so until, until the storm passes is to kind of get at this other dimension of resistance, that resistance isn't always um, as obvious as we think it is, but it doesn't mean that it's not important. And of course, this, and it also really kind of brings to the fore the fact that for Brazil's political class, the military dictatorship was very much a storm. You know, the people who we know were repressed under dictatorship were certainly leftist militants who were imprisoned, um, tortured, and in many cases disappeared or um, extrajudicially extra executed. Um, but politicians themselves also faced um, a lot of repression at the hands of the military. And it was certainly a storm the Brazilian political elite had only seen once before during their history, um, during the 1930 to 1945 dictatorship of Getulio Vargas. Um, so yeah, it was a storm and they tried to wait for it to pass, but did what they could to make it pass as well. What does your research reveal about Brazil's transition to democracy? What lessons does Brazil's example teach to others, including to specialists in comparative politics? So. Brazil, the way that Brazil's transition to democracy was sort of traditionally envisioned, and of course these studies of Brazil's transition um, were first done by political scientists and specialists in international relations um, in the 1980s, right? Because I'm thinking about people like Guillermo Donald, for example, um, but a lot of other people as well. And there was this moment where, you know, not only in Brazil, but also in Africa, also in Korea, also in Eastern Europe, um, where authoritarian regimes were falling all around the world. And there was a lot of, I think, really justified um, excitement about democratization. Um, in the case of Brazil, for the most part, um, but I think other places as well, right? There was, um, there tended to be a focus on, like when trying to figure out like who was responsible for democratization. Um, there was a lot of focus on whoever the authoritarians were who were, who were in power, often the military. Um, so you had some specialists, you know, focus on the way that Brazil's military sort of made the conscious choice to step back from power. And you had other people who focused on the pressure of what um, political scientists came to call civil society, you know, social movements. So in Brazil, that meant groups like um, uh, neighborhood associations, the progressive Catholic Church. Um, it meant sort of the, the early burgeoning Black women's and LGBTQ movements, um, you know, and certainly popular protests. Right? And, and so when people thought about, like, who was responsible for the fall of the Brazilian dictatorship, it was either the military or it was civil society. And that kind of left out this one to me at least, kind of glare, you know, glaringly left out one really important actor, which was the country's political elite, um, which in many I mean, in Brazil is often hereditary, right? And so it's the same families in many cases that were running certain states and by extension the country for centuries. And to think that like suddenly they didn't matter anymore and it was only about the generals or about civil society um, seemed a little bit um, dubious to me. And so I chose to focus on I'm thinking about really more broadly, right? Like what are the, what roles do elites play in democratic transitions? Not so much in the sense of parties, right? Some people have done studies of specific political parties, but what are sort of the cultural things that unite all the civilian political elites together, regardless of whether on the right or on the left, you know, what kind of socialization do they have that makes them look at the world in similar ways? Um, so, and I, 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 I know it's not entirely fair to say this of international relations or political science, but I th I'd say that um, historically there's been not a hostility, but maybe a, a discounting to some extent of the role that culture plays in determining politics, right? Because culture is really hard to quantify, and these have become very quantitative disciplines, which certainly has its advantages. Um, but sometimes it's a little bit hard to think, I think, for my, my colleagues in political science about, like, I have a story, for example, of a colleague who was presenting a paper. Um, she asked, or she, I'm sure she was, at a, she was at a conference and asked a political science scientist, like, you know, you have all these variables up here in your in your in your uh, in your table, but like, where's what I study? Where's where's culture? 
It's like, oh, no, no, look here at column four. I've adjusted for culture. And um, that's not the way we really look at it as historians. We don't really see culture, even human behavior as necessarily quantifiable. Um, so I think that for my colleagues in more quantitative social sciences, um, it's looking, you know, it's really thinking about the ways that less tangible things um, like social, you know, what does it mean, for example, that most of the politicians who I study are from the upper class and that they are white? Um, what does it mean that they're almost entirely men and have this very sort of masculinized way of looking at the world based upon, uh, you know, based upon the defending their honor lots of times? Um, what does it mean that um, in many cases, these politicians all went to the same schools and that overwhelmingly, or well, not overwhelmingly, but a significant majority of them, around 60% during this period I study, had specifically gone to school to study law. Um, and at a very limited number of law schools. Um, what did that mean? And so thinking about how these less tangible things um, are also, I guess to use the terms of political science, variables as well, right? That we have to find some way to take into account, whether it be quantitatively, um, like people in those fields do, or qualitatively, like I do. What, if anything, is unique about the history of Brazil's dictatorships, the dictatorship vis-a-vis -vis other dictatorships in South America? What, if anything, is unique about the history of Brazil's dictatorship vis-a-vis -vis other South American dictatorships? So this is a question that I would say lots. There are lots of things different about Brazil, but it's also kind of delicate terrain to tread upon because, you know, if you look at the Argentine dictatorship between 1976 and 1983, the Proceso de Reorganización Nacional, um, it killed, you know, anywhere between, you know, I think the best estimates around 30,000 people, right? Over seven years in a country of about 25 to 30 million people. Um, in Chile, there were several thousand killed, mostly um, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of the coup of 1973. Um, in Brazil, the total number of people killed um, for political reasons by the military regime um, was between three and 500 people um, in a country of well over 100 million people over a 21 year period. And so one of the things that sets Brazil's military regime apart is it's much less bloody than its southern than its southern much uh, than its southern cone counterparts. I wouldn't say less repressive, but certainly much less um, sanguinary, right? And this has um, to do with um, lots of reasons in Brazilian history, um, which we don't have time to get into now. But certainly the immediate reason, right, is that when um, Pinochet came to power in Chile in 1973. And when the generals took over in Argentina in 1976, they were both responding to a perceived breakdown of democracy, right? It's like, we let you have democratic elections and you elected Allende and Perón, right? And so democracy doesn't work. And so we need something else was kind of the military rationale in those countries. Um, in Brazil, the military was stepping in to, um, to um, remove a leftist former vice president who had become president um, when the previous president resigned, um, who was believed to perhaps have communist sympathies. Um, he was a mildly leftist reformer in reality, but as far as the, you know, as much like Bolsonaro, as far as the military was concerned, you know, anything remotely progressive was communist. Um, and so the whole discourse of the Brazilian dictatorship from the beginning is that the military was coming in to save democracy. It wasn't that democracy hadn't worked, it was that democracy was being threatened. And so when you have come to save democracy, you can't really do the things that the Argentine dictatorship did, which is close Congress and declare political parties illegal, for example. Um, the generals in Brazil tried all manner of things to control Congress, um, usually very successfully, but they couldn't just close it. And so whereas there was no Congress under the Argentine dictatorship or under the Chilean dictatorship, 
um, and no parties in Argentina, and parties were um, outlawed fairly quickly in Chile. Um, in Brazil, you had parties throughout the entire dictatorship, um, the entire 21-year period, and Congress was closed um, on only three occasions for like two weeks, one month, and seven months, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, and so, yeah, two weeks, one month, and you have seven or eight months, yeah. And so in the case of Brazil, it's a dictatorship, but it's one that works in a very different way. And it's one that needs civilian politicians to legitimize it. Because if you're a democracy, you know, you have to have elected politicians, for example. Um, and so, yeah, less bloody and certainly a more prominent role for civilian political, for, for civilian politicians and for political institutions um, are probably the two things that really set Brazil apart. In fact, the country I would say that's more similar to, and I don't know a lot about this country, so I can't elaborate on it too much, but in the reading I've done about democratic transitions in other countries, um, it really looks more similar to the democratic transitions in Greece and in South Korea, um, both countries in which had had allowed kind of a, a role for civilian politicians roughly analogous to the one that they had in Brazil, and one in which sort of the withdrawal of support from civilian politicians, especially in South Korea, would play an important role in democratization, which happened um, in the 80s in South Korea about the same time as it was happening in Brazil. Um, but Brazil really stands apart from its counterparts in the Southern Cone, um, by nature of being less overtly repressive and having a greater role for um, for quote unquote democratic institutions, which were tightly controlled. You you note in your research that the military regime mistrusted the political <laughs> class yeah. and saw them as a problem to be solved, and that this fun. You also note that this fundamentally clashed with the image that politicians had of themselves. Can you speak about this in more detail? Sure. So, you know, from the beginning, um, the military saw Brazil's politicians as one of the things about the country that needed to be fixed. Um, when the military took over in 1964, um, from their perspective, there were certainly, and, and certainly from civilian politicians' perspective, most civilian politicians, Brazil had two problems, right? Um, the economy wasn't doing well, um, inflation was out of control, um, and so the economy needed to be set on a right track, sort of in the in the interest of promoting national development, which you know developmentalism was kind of the core of what every Brazilian government did at the time. And of course, the second thing was to you know defeat quote unquote quote unquote communism or what the military called leftist subversion, um, which in the in the political realm um, involved the forced removal from Congress of the more left wing politicians. Those were things that the political elite as a whole, who tend to mostly not be leftist, um, and the military could both get behind. Um, the problem is the military had a third goal in their reform of Brazil, as they saw it, and that was to, re that was to reform Brazil's political elite, um, who had largely helped them come to power through the coup of 1964, which had so much civilian collaboration that Brazilian historians have taken, it, have taken to calling it a civilian military coup and not just a military coup. Then the military takes power, the civilian politicians think, oh, you know, they'll be gone in six months, a year, they'll have elections, everything will go back to normal. And they never imagined it was going to last 21 years. Um, and so suddenly it's like the politicians realize, oh, no, like we miscalculated. The military thinks that we're one of the problems to be solved. And like, why did the military think that Brazilian politicians were a problem? Well, they saw them as um, self-interested, which they often were, as corrupt which they often were, um, as much more focused on sort of their, you know, their feuds with their rivals than on um, the improvement of the country, which they were. Um, the so the military wasn't wrong in any of this, but it really threw politicians for a loop 
And the reason it threw them for a loop was because they had been conditioned through their own socialization, through their member, you know, through their membership in a white male, largely hereditary elite, um, you know, people who almost always had a college education in a country in which, you know, at the time, maybe two or three percent of the population had a college education. You know, they thought they were in power because they were the best. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the military come in and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, I think. But um you know, the military had a very different class composition from politicians, um, much often uh, much more uh, likely to be middle class, usually edu educated in military schools, as opposed to like in law schools like the politicians. So all of a sudden you had these like, you know, middle to upper middle class generals, you know, presuming to tell the political elites who think that they're in power because of their own merit, what they're supposed to do and telling them you're a bunch of immature children who we are going to have to reform. And this really upset politicians, but by the time they realized what was happening, the military was already solidly in power. And so that's what the entire book is about, is how did they navigate that and begin to create the conditions to force the military to leave power and to regain some of their power and prerogatives? What transpired in the revolution, the quote-unquote revolution of 1964, what were its short medium and long-term consequences. Why is it known as the revolution of 1964? So um, the term revolution, that is what the military called it. Um, when I include it in my book, I use it in scare quotes because that whole revolutionary discourse came from the, um, came from the idea they were saving Brazil from communism, right? And so it was this moralizing um, democratic revolution that was going to rescue Brazil from the, from the three crises that it faced, the ones that I just talked about, um, the economic crisis, the um, subversive crisis, and um, the political crisis. Um, and so the military for the next you know, 20 years always referred to it as revolution. Um, politicians did too, even left-wing politicians, just because if you called it anything other than a revolution, the military was probably going to crack down on you. So you couldn't really call it a coup. Everybody called it a revolution. Um, and so, but really what it was, was a military coup, right? Or a, a civilian military coup, to use the term of um, a lot of Brazilian historians. Um, but really the whole project throughout the next 20 years is what the military would have called its revolutionary project. Um, and gosh, the, the consequences for Brazil are really hard to distill into just a few because it's really shaped almost everything about Brazil today. Um, but certainly one of those consequences, um, at least initially, um, so when people think about these military regimes in Latin America, they often think the Chilean regime um, in economic terms, right? Which um, brought in the Chicago boys, who have been you know, economists educated at the University of Chicago and kind of made Chile into a laboratory of neoliberalism. Um, in Brazil, it wasn't like that. In Brazil, it was very much a product. Um, the military planning was um, very focused on the state, um, state-run, but um, you know, very central. Uh, I wouldn't say centrally planned, but a heavy role for the states in economic planning. Um, Brazil's dictatorship was not really neoliberal in any sense of the word. Um, and so that is that sort of effect of continuing to have an important role for the state um, in economic development, um, in social planning. Um, that is something that um, really Brazil even had before then, but I think it got stronger during the dictatorship and it influenced the shape that Brazil, that um, that both of these things would take in Brazil later on. Um, that was certainly one of the effects of it. Um, one of the effects as well in Brazil, and I say this is more of a short-term effect, um, was that there had been there were really strong social movements in Brazil in 1964, um, especially in favor of things like land reform, but also a very militant student movement. Um, and so the Brazilian, the Brazilian left, um, not just the revolutionary left, but really anyone on the left, um, its development was really put on hold for about a 15-year period until the end of the dictatorship. 
Um, and so Brazil to this day remains one of the few Latin American countries that has never had a meaningful land reform, for example, um, where land ownership, um, both in the sort of um, in the Northeast, which is the poorest part of the country, but increasingly in the Amazon as well, and in this um, sort of the soybean country of Western Brazil, um, land ownership is remarkably concentrated in only a few hands. There's a remarkable number of people who have, you know, no land of their own at all. Um, and so that's kind of been a continued effect of the, of, of the military regime as well. But in a more positive way, too, you know, one of the, I say the greatest effect of the military regime, quite paradoxically, um, has been the has has been what I talked about a little bit earlier, which is the appearance of a much more democratic and participatory system than Brazil ever had before, which is something that the generals were not intending at all. Right when they talked about democracy, they, I think one of the one of the military presidents, the third one, or the fourth one, Ernesto Geisel, um, said yes. What we're what we're seeking to implement in Brazil is a relative democracy suitable for the level of intellectual and social and educational developments of our people, um, which kind of meant no democracy at all. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of that was sort of the idea that the military had um, for what they're going to do. But of course, that's not what wound up happening. By the 1970s and 1980s, there was the rise of all these social movements that I talked about of a much more um, vocal political opposition, um, which and it was this sort of resistance to the dictatorship among social movements that set the role for Brazilian that set that set the course of Brazilian democratization and eventually um, the constitution that was um, written in 1988 which had um it's a much more democratic document than Brazil had ever had before and probably more democratic than our American constitution as well um, and so that was why the greatest effect of the dictatorship was paradoxically setting into motion the conditions for Brazil to become um, a far more open and democratic country who was Getulio Vargas? Can you elaborate on his importance and can you comment on his legacy in Brazilian history? Sure. So um, Getulio Vargas um, comes really before the period that I study, but um, his shadow hangs over the entire period. And even over Brazilian politics today, almost 100 years after he first came to power, um, Getulio Vargas was part of a, um, he was one among several military officers, uh, or, or not military officers, one, one among several people involved in the planning of um, a coup in 1930, which overthrew Brazil's first republic, um, which was the system of government that had been put in place 40 years before when Brazil's post-independence monarchy was overthrown. Um, this revolution in 1930 had several objectives we don't have time to get into here, but over time, Vargas would take an increasingly powerful role within the regime that arose. Um, in 1934, he was elected president by, um, by Congress, which was still open at the time. Um, in 1937, he declared, um, he, with the support of the military, he um, put into motion a self-coup, after which he closed Congress and um, banned political parties. It would remain that way until 1945, and he, rules, he ruled as a dictator for eight years. Um, but since Vargas did not have a base of support among sort of the traditional political elite, he had to look for it elsewhere. And the place where he looked for it was among the urban working class. And so to the extent that Brazil would have social legislation, then things like workers' rights, you know, things like paid vacation, things like um, a social security program. These were all things that Vargas put in, um, largely by decree. And so he was the beginning. He fits within sort of the Latin American context, like of Lázaro Cárdenas in Mexico, Juan Perón in Argentina, um, of what historians and political scientists have called populists, right? And that's a term that is increasing relevance today in the era of people like um, Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, um, the sort of direct appeal to the people, right? And so Brazil's political elites, well, certainly during the dictatorship, I'd say even today, 
look back on the Vargas regime with, with horror, right? Because this was the moment, even more so in the military dictatorship, where they were completely set aside and marginalized from any you know significant decision-making role, except for you know the ones who decided to cast their lot with Vargas. Um, and so this um, the, the entire Vargas period, which was 1930 to 45, then he came back in 1950, was democratically elected president, and remained in power until he committed suicide in the presidential palace in 1954 during a political crisis when he was about to be deposed. So like, for 25 years, he was Brazilian politics. Um, and so this the difference that he made in the country in terms of social legislation that would begin to give a political role to the masses, um, his repression of the political elite, um, these, these are things that sort of continued to hang over Brazilian politics in the 1960s. And when the coup happened and this mildly leftist president, Jean Goulart, was overthrown, um, he it was the equivalency that was made between you know, what he was often compared to was not just communist, but also Vargas, right? If you allowed him to continue to consolidate power with his direct appeals to the workers, he would turn into another Vargas. Um, I think today, Getulio Vargas is remembered, um, he's certainly a mixed bag, but um, is rem remembered more favorably because of the social legislation that he put in place, as, as favorably as one can remember a dictator anyway. Um, but um, yeah, he's, if there's sort of like, if there is like, until the Lula presidency recently, right, Lula has sort of cast a shadow over Brazilian politics now for as long as Vargas did. Until Lula, like if you had to talk about who is like the most important Brazilian in history, it would have been Getulio Vargas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You note in your research that the Brazilian military during the period analyzed in your study believed that they were defending democracy. Can you describe the democracy that the military had in mind? One that they could control. Um, that's what they, they had a lot of discourse about the kind of democracy. They, they could call it a relative democracy. They could say they were saving the country some, from, from subversion, you know, from communism. But what they really meant was one that they could control. And so they put in very specific mechanisms to make this happen. You know, what I talked about earlier was how, you know, sure, like, they, you know, they kept Congress open. They did not um, ban political parties. But they meddled so much in the political process that like they might as well have closed Congress, at least at one point. So sort of case in point, um, in 1965, they um, so every time every time the military wanted to kind of like step outside the bounds of democratic norms, they would decree what was called an institutional act, um, ato, ato institucional in Portuguese. Um, and so like basically, you know, they would, they would tell Congress, hey, we want such and such legislation, do such and such. On the rare occasion, Congress said, no, the military would say, fine, we're imposing an institutional act. We're going to do it anyway. Um, and so that was kind of the most blatant way that they stepped outside of democratic norms. Um, another example was in 1969, the third military president, Artur da Costa e Silva, um, suffered a stroke, was incapacitated, and would die a couple of months later. Um, he had a civilian vice president who the military did not like. And so instead of allowing that civilian vice president to come to power, the military stepped in, said, you will not be president. And they... Um, and they ordered Congress to elect a general president instead, which Congress did. Um, and so, you know, they really, they, they, all these reforms they made to the political system 
were intended to gain the compliance of civilian politicians, which would then legitimize the regime. Problem is civilian politicians, as my book talks about, didn't always do what they were told. And so the military stepped in over and over and over again um, to break the own, their own rules that they had set up to reset the political system to what they wanted. Um, as the dictatorship wore on, the form that this took was in um, doing whatever they needed to to ensure a majority in Congress, um, usually through elections, but not always. Um, every once in a while, they would do something like, you know, appoint one third of the Senate themselves to make sure they could re they could retain a majority. Um, but they developed these things that Brazilians would call casuismos, which are these sort of like opportunistic reworkings of um, election law in particular, in order to ensure that they could continue to have a majority in Congress. Um, and this um, happened over and over and over again. And what's really you know, crazy is that despite these constant, like really blatant efforts to manipulate what they call democracy or democratic institutions to suit their ends, in the end, the military was removed from power anyway, through the very systems that they had put in place to try to keep themselves in power. So they said democracy, but what they really meant was, you know, keeping some democratic window dressing, but there was really no doubt about who was actually in power, which was, you know, a, a cabal of a very few generals. What changes did the military make to Brazil's party system? What role did parties play in the military's political project? So we, are, we already talked a little bit about how different this is from the other Southern Cone regimes. Um, so before, in 1964, Brazil had a multi-party system um, with maybe I'd say 10 to 12 parties that were electorally you know, competitive. Um, there were three main parties that were, the, that, were the, that were the three largest parties, but several smaller ones as well. Um, and the military, of course, found it very hard to cobble together kind of a reliable majority in Congress when you had so many parties. Um, and so what they wound up doing in, 19, uh, in 1965 was through one of these institutional acts, they unilaterally um, abolished the old parties. And they set, and, and they and they, they set up a, a mechanism to where up to three new parties could be founded. Um, what wound up happening was that two new parties were founded. Um, a regime allied party called the Alliance of National Renovation and politicians flocked to join that party because um, we don't have a lot of time to get into this, but in Brazil, if you're a politician, it's not really about ideology. There's, um, you can either be in the situation, the situation, or in the opposition, which is the opposition. And you never want to be in the opposition because when you're in the opposition, you know your governor might not give you the funds to your municipality, right? Which, if you're a mayor, will continue to get you elected. So, like the sort of the guiding principle of Brazilian politics is to be on the side of whoever's in power. And so the, which is why you know in Brazil, like after any. Um, election, you know, a significant proportion of Congress switches parties because they want to join. They want to join a party that's allied with whoever the new president is. Um, this is completely unimaginable, I think, in U.S. or in Canadian politics, for that matter. Um, and so, um, in Brazil, when they found these two new parties, you instantly had a regime allied party, which instantly had at least a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress and in pretty much all, all the state legislatures. And you had an opposition party, and people wound up in the opposition party for one of two reasons. Um, either because they were some of the principled few who believed that the military regime was an assault on democracy and that it needed to be fought. Um, there was a decent number of those, not a ton. Or the other reason you, you might wind up in the opposition is because your worst enemy already made it to the regime allied party, and you'd rather be in the opposition than be in the same party with him. Um, and so even the opposition party is not always oppositional, at least to the military regime. Um, and so really for between 1965 and 1980, you had this two-party system. In 1980, as the opposition started to grow, 
The military allowed a return to a multi-party system as a way to fracture the opposition. And then you wind up with what Brazil has today in its politics, which is Brazil's a complete outlier globally in that there's, I think, close around 25 parties currently represented in Brazil's Congress between 25 or 30, which is far and away the most in the world, almost twice as much as any other country. Um, so Brazil really has, um, I think it's fair to say, the most fractured party system in the world today. And historically has two, one of the most fractured. And so the military tried to create this two-party system, and they completely failed at it. You note in your research that most of the political elites in Brazil supported the coup of 1964. At what point did the political elites start to change their mind? So I'd say it really it started with this party reform in 1965, when suddenly the parties they spent decades building in some cases were instantly dissolved, right? And when the military, so there had been the first institutional act, which was passed in 1964, and that was used to remove um, a couple of hundred politicians from office um, at the federal, state, and local levels, you know, the, the most notorious leftists mainly. Um, and most of the people who were left were okay with that. Um, they understood that was what the military planned to do. But then every time the military decided to intervene, they would pass an institutional act and give themselves the right to remove more politicians from office. And eventually, like anyone who had made even the most timid crit criticisms of the regime was um, subject to removal from office. Um, and so very so basically the, this, uh, the discontent among the political class with the military um, started at the moment when they realized that the regime was completely arbitrary and that any of them could be removed from power at any time. Um, really, the moment when this really happened, I mean, it started in 1965, and kind of the crisis was in 1968. Um, there were two things that happened in 1968. Um, the first of those, which I'll talk about now, um, was that Brazil, and this is in keeping with things going on in a lot of the rest of the world, the US, France, many other countries, um, had a very vocal student movement that year that was protesting um, a lot of things, but protesting the military regime in Brazil. Um, and the military cracked down on the student movement, um, most notably when they in, um, invaded the campus of the University of Brasilia to arrest some student activists and like basically, you know, smashed up the whole place. Um, and but of course, this is a country where like only a very small percentage of people are actually going to college. Um, but all the politicians' kids are going to college. And so many in many cases, the students who were being repressed by the military were the politicians' own children. Um, you know, Brazil has long been used to and is still used to, um, although it's actually being denounced in recent years, I think as a result of the influence of Black Lives Matter from the United States, um, Brazil has always understood that there will be police violence against the working class and the working class in Brazil being you know, largely black and brown. Um, politicians weren't upset at police violence per se. They were upset against um, they were upset at police violence against their children and against their social class. Um, and so that was one moment where politicians were like, OK, look, we have done everything you, that you people said. Do not mess with our kids. Um, so that was kind of the first, that was one of the big things that happened in 1968 to make even regime allied politicians, whose kids were often much more leftist than they were, um, question whether they had done the right thing in 1964 and think, oh no, we got a lot more than we bargained for. What was Institutional Act Number 5? Can you explain? So Institutional Act Number 5, that is the second, that's, that's a, a result of the politicians sort of defense of the student movement in 68. Um, but then sort of the second thing that happened in 1968, which would turn them against the regime. And this was related to a congressman um, um, named Marcio Moreira Alves. Um, so in 
after the military had, in, this is in um, chapter two of my book, after the military had invaded the University of Brasilia, um, arrested a bunch of student activists, um, Congress was really upset about this. And this one politician, Marcio Moreira Alves, who was one of the more leftist ones in, um, in Congress, um, he gave this speech where he called the military a band of torturers. Um, and then another speech the next day, um, he proposed that the um, that young women who dated young officers should go on a sex strike um, until the military stopped supporting um, the police and their repression of students activists. Uh, military was quite offended by this, as this was an attack on their masculine honor, like by daring to suggest that their women not have sex with them. Um, and this was actually the thing, funny, you know, hilarious in some ways as it sounds to us, um, military was extremely offended by this and demanded that Congress um, you know, in Argentina, of course, what the military would have done is they probably would have just kidnapped him and thrown him into prison. Um, in Brazil, they asked Congress permission to put him on trial in the Supreme Court for his, quote unquote, attack on the democratic order because he criticized the military. Um, and so there's this like two month drama where Congress is debating, are they going to give the military permission to prosecute him or not? And keep in mind, Congress has a two thirds majority of the regime allied party in the lower house of Congress. And in the vote on December 12th, 1968, um, Congress voted by a significant majority to deny the military permission to prosecute this guy because there's the idea like if we let them prosecute him for what he says from the floor of Congress, like anybody could be next. Um, in response, the military decreed Institutional Act number five the next day. Um, they closed Congress. They gave the military the power to remove politicians from Congress, which they promptly did to Marcio Moreira Alves, and he went into exile in the United States. Um, and um, they did a lot of other things like suspend habeas corpus. Um, you know, Congress was closed for um, eight or nine months at that point. Um, and this was like the most repressive moment of the military. And so the, the point where it went from this sort of civilian military regime, which was 1964 to 68, to a blatant military dictatorship is when Institutional Act Number no. 5 was decreed. And um, Institutional Act Number no. 5, or AI-5 as Brazilians call it, um, would remain in force until 1978. So for almost exactly 10 years. Although Congress was reopened after a few months. What do you mean by the everyday practice of politics? What does this term and concept explain? Yeah, so when this goes back to kind of this thing about until the storm passes or inadvertent opposition, right? Um, as the military, so after AI-5 is decreed in 1968, um, one of the things that happened was um, several hundred politicians were removed from office at the federal, state, and local levels, pretty much anyone who had ever criticized the military. Um, and then the only ones who are left were the most pliant, right? Or the ones who are at least able to keep their heads down. Um, over time, there, there were still elections in 1970 for Congress and 1974. Um, you know, you gradually had a few more vocal and progressive um, people who were elected to Congress. Um, but it quickly emerged that there, there were sort of like three ways that you could respond to the military, right? Um, one way was to... Um, was to, was to vocally denounce the military dictatorship and their assault on democracy. Problem is, like, you weren't actually going to get much done with that because the people who were willing to do so were a very small majority in Congress. So it was heroic. It was also largely ineffective. Um, another opposition, another, another option was you could just sort of keep your head down and wait for the storm to pass. Um, but the third option, this is kind of one that gets into everyday practice of politics, is to recognize and um, over time, more and more politicians recognized this, was that there was still a political system. You could still run for office. You could still cultivate a following among you know, city councilors in the city you were from. You could still build sort of clientelistic networks. Um, you could still compete to get more resources sent to your state or to your, to your municipality. 
And so this whole thing, like working within the system, in as much as there was still a system, um, is what a lot of politicians opted for. And this sort of thing of like the everyday practice of politics, continuing to work within the system to the extent that you could, largely for your own advancement. Um, that is what wound up being the most effective means of opposition to the dictatorship. Even if it wasn't opposition per se, it winds up being opposition because you've got to keep in mind that the very the whole goal of the military is that you take the self-interest out of politics, that you train politicians to you know sort of patriotically do what's best for the country and that they will put their own self-interest aside, which like when has that ever worked, right? It's never worked. Like the military is remarkably naive in a lot of ways. Um, and so to the extent that politicians continue to play the political game as they always had, to continue to conduct the everyday practice of politics, that winds up destabilizing the military's, the military's plan because you know, politicians remain self-interested and more interested in their own personal and material advancement, political and material advancement, than they do in implementing you know, the, the, the regime's agenda. Um, and so ultimately, this everyday practice of politics would wind up playing um, a role that has largely been unacknowledged, but I would argue the decisive role in the decline and fall of the military dictatorship. What transpired in the 1974 elections? Can you speak more about this? So um, in so the, in Brazil's congressional elections to this day, every four years, um, so 70, 74, 82, and so on, all the way up to 2022. Um, and in 1970, um, the opposition had been completely demolished in the elections. Um, the Senate had, oh, I want to say it was around around 70, 71, 74, 72, 75 senators at the time. Um, the opposition only had seven senators, um, and they had about 20% of the seats in the Chamber of Deputies, Brazil's equivalent of the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, and so um, there was actually talk in 1970 of disbanding the opposition party altogether. Um, in 1974, though, um, the opposition scored a stunning victory in legislative elections. Um, they won 16 of 22 open Senate seats, and they got up to about 45 percent um, in the lower House of Congress, which gave them the ability to you know, block constitutional amendments, for example, which required a two-thirds majority. Um, and the generals were completely taken by surprise because over the last five years, Brazil had experienced what was called the economic miracle, where the economy grew by an average of nine or 10 percent per year, I believe it was. Um, the economy was expanding. Brazil's like in full swing of industrialization. There's plenty of jobs. Um, and so the military thinks, like, how could we possibly lose this election? And then they did. And of course, this was this was because, you know, the economy may have been growing, but it wasn't growing for everyone, right? Um, and so there was, you know, continued to be sort of an increasing concentration of wealth, you know, in the hands of sort of the industrial and landowning elites. And these changes weren't necessarily trickling down to the rest of the population, these, these benefits. And so the opposition very astutely stepped in in 1974. And previously, like all their critiques of the regime had been based on the way that it was stifling um, democratic norms, right? You know, they're throwing people in prison, they, the things that politicians were concerned about. Um, and this was actually not a winning strategy because like if your family is hungry, what do you care about how democratic the country is? Um, they recognized in 1974 that perhaps a more effective strategy would be to point out the ways in which the regime's policies had failed to benefit everyone. Um, and so that's what they did. And of course, this is one of the, the only way left to express any opposition to the regime was through the elections. Um, and so much of the military shock, um, it was in 1974, in, in 1974, the opposition wins this completely unexpected victory 
um, in legislative elections. Like in 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 August, um, the Senate candidate in Sao Paulo, he was trailing in polls by something like 70 percent to 7 percent. And he wound up winning 73 percent to 27 percent um, for the, the opposition Senate candidate in Sao Paulo. Uh, and that was just one example among many of this sort of shocking victory. Um, the question, of course, after the election was, would the military allow it to stand? Because any time that their will had been um, contravened in the past, um, they would step in with repression. Um, but the new military president, um, Ernesto Geisel, had just declared that there was going to be this sort of um, opening in the political system because he thought he could get away with it because he didn't think they would lose the elections. Then they do lose the elections. And kind of, the key, I'd say, one of the one of the key moments other than AI-5 in the military dictatorship was when the military decided to respect the election results in 1974. And this is what opens up the entire second half of the dictatorial period, which is when there's this sort of effervescence and flowering of the, op of, of the opposition, both the political opposition and later civil society opposition. So 1974 is the beginning of the end for the dictatorship. Who was Ulysses Guimarães? Can you describe him? So um, Ulysses Guimarães is the politician who... I think more than anyone else exemplifies what I'm trying to get at in the way that politicians changed during military rule. Um, so he was in Congress in 1964. Um, if I remember correctly, he voted in um, he um, voted in favor of, of Institutional Act Number One. Um, I'm not sorry, not Institutional Act Number One um, of um, declaring the presidency vacant when um, which allowed um, the military to assume power. Um, he didn't really he never he didn't say anything um, during. Um, as his colleagues were removed from office in 1964 and in 1969. Um, and then in 1973, he becomes sort of the face of the opposition all of a sudden. Um, one of the terms that was used to refer to him before this, you know, back in his more, his sort of quieter days, um, one of his um, colleagues in Congress later referred to him as a really funny term, a vaca de presepio, which, um, which literally means a nativity scene cow. Um, and what this comes from was oftentimes in Catholic churches, they'd have these nativity scenes set up at the entrance. And um, in the nativity scene, um, many times um, the cow next to baby Jesus in the manger would have a mouth you could put donations into. And you would pull a lever and the, the cow would nod his head and then the donation would slide down his throat. And so a nativity scene cow is someone who just nods his head all the time, i.e. a yes man. And so we're saying Luis Gimaraes was originally a yes man um, in relation to the military. Um, but in 1973, um, they're about they're about to have a presidential election, which presidential elections were indirect, i.e., Congress elected the president, and the military ensured that they would always have um, a majority in Congress. And the opposition decided to nominate this guy, Ulises Guimarães, as their candidate, um, even though they knew they were going to lose. And so he called himself an anti-candidate, that he was going to denounce the um uh, the military's um usurpation of democracy. Um, which he did in very for in very forceful terms. Um, the guy was a brilliant orator. Um, one of the things I do in my book that um, that's really um, exciting to me as a historian is um, I use not only written sources but also audio sources because all the congressional sessions from 1970 to the present are available um, and archived on the website of um, the Brazilian Chamber of Deputies, the lower house of Congress. And so I can listen to this guy's speeches. And um, he was a brilliant orator. And um, over time, though, like this, he makes these denunciations of the regime in 1973, 1974, and then throughout the 70s and into the 80s, he becomes increasingly in tune with social movements and increasingly a man of the people. Um, he was the one who would lead demonstrations in 1984 that uh, immediately preceded the fall of the dictatorship, which at the time were the largest demonstrations in Brazil's history. And so like how this guy goes from kind of like a yes man who is, 
you know, willing to let the military's um, assaults on democracy slide into someone who in the later years of the dictatorship, like he was regularly a candidate for being kicked out of Congress because he upset the military so much. And so how someone goes from compliance to really vocal opposition, um, he's the best example of that, but he's certainly not the only person who did that under military rule. Can you describe some of the tensions that arose between politicians' embrace of popular mobilization and their socialization as members of an overwhelming elite uh, of the white hereditary elite. Yeah. So as this gets into like really what the second half of the book is all about, which is starting with the 1974 elections, this is kind of the moment when not only politicians become more open in their opposition, um, but also when you start of start to have this flowering of civil society that would characterize um the last 10 years of military rule and continues to be really powerful to this day. Um, and so I think politicians, even the ones that were allied with the military regime, right? Like there was this recognition that, you know, they had been unable to kind of get themselves out from out from under the military's thumb on their own. But if they could, uh, perhaps they could take advantage of these social movements in order to put more, uh, more pressure on the military. Um, these, I, I don't really have a lot of like, overt examples of them making this calculation, but it seems pretty clear that this is what was going on, even if unconsciously on, on, on some level for people. And so politicians um, really start to, um, especially from the opposition, but as the regime wears on, some politicians from the regime allied party too, they really start to um, to get on board with these social movements. Um, the best example was in between 1978 and 1980, when a um, young and very um, vocal union leader in suburban Sao Paulo named Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who is today president of Brazil, um, started leading these strikes. Um, strikes were basically illegal under the dictatorship. Um, he led them anyway, um, 1978, then in 1979, and also in 1980, three years in a row. Um, the military cracked down hard on these strikes, especially in 79 and 80. Um, you know, they were sending mil military police to the street who were beating up picketing workers. Um, Lula was arrested um, in, in, um, in 1980. Um, and so politicians, especially from the opposition, actually, um, in, in some cases, actually even put their own physical safety um, on the line to go out to the picket lines and defend workers. Um, this is something none of them would have done, I don't think, in 1964. I mean, for Brazilian political elites throughout all of Brazilian history, right? The working classes, the largely black and brown working classes are to be feared, right? This goes all the way back to slavery um, when you know the European descended elites were a tiny minority and the country was almost all either enslaved people or people who had formerly been enslaved. And so the sort of fear of the, of, of the popular classes is something that's always characterized the Brazilian political elite. Then suddenly in 1979, 1980, you have people going to the picket lines to put their own safety on the line to defend workers who are getting beaten up by the police. And so this is this moment where all of a sudden like politicians are willing to endorse um, mass movements in a way that they never had been before. At least some of them are. Um, but there's also a tension here, right? Because you can endorse popular movements in order to try to get military out of power, or even because you even because you you know sincerely agree with their goals. But that whole sort of fear that you know the working class will take over and push us out of power, I think elites everywhere have, right, including in our own countries. Um, that was something that they, that they continued to have. And so this sort of tension between, on the one hand, a support for social movements and for democracy, on the other hand, a desire to maintain their traditional power and prerogatives to the extent possible, um, that was um, 
certainly a factor in 1985, the dictatorship fell. It was a factor in 1988 when the new constitution um, was uh, when the new constitution was written, and it was certainly a factor in 2016 when Juma Josefi was um, removed when the president was removed um, in this sort of legally spurious um, uh, impeachment process. Um, after the Workers' Party, Lula's party had been in power at the time for um, for 14 years and had done a lot to reduce inequality, to provide opportunities to, um, to working people. Um, you know, great expansion of the university system. The Brazilian elite was upset because, you know, now when you get on a flight somewhere, like your maid might be in the seat next to you flying to visit her family in the Northeast. And like, you know, in Brazil, the working class takes the bus. They don't get on airplanes. Um, and so this kind of tension between supporting social movements, but also being very wary of what this could mean to entrenched social relations and to the uh, the social power, but also the economic power of the traditional elite. Um, that was the tension in during the strikes in 1979 and 1980, and that is the tension today. How did the support that politicians gave to social movements in the later years of the military dictatorship differ from their relationship with social movements at earlier phases in Brazil's history? such as during the 1945 to 1964 period. Yeah, so during, um, as I mentioned earlier, 45 to 64 was the one moment where Brazil had something approaching a democratic system, right? It's called the Populist Republic um, by historians. Um, and there was you know, a pretty, a pretty um, vocal labor movement, for example, and a lot of strikes. But at the time, this is sort of a legacy of what, of, of what Getulio Vargas had put into place, um, when politicians endorsed popular movements, it was under this sort of like laborist sort of system, right? Where it was like, we politicians will represent the interest of you workers. You know, you can count on us to fight for you by passing worker-friendly legislation. Um, and so, you know, there's certainly moments when the Brazilian political elite, at least some of them, had been receptive to popular demands. But it was in this sense of like, you know, elect me to represent you. So there was no real challenge to existing social relations, just kind of an openness to reform within the existing system of social relations. Um, what begins to happen in the late 1970s and early 1980s, um, there's this one speech that Lula gave during one of the strikes um, where he said, the time has come for, uh, you know, for workers to stop being bossed around and for us to start giving the orders around here. Um, and so when politicians would endorse social movements in the 70s and 80s, those social movements often had an explicit challenge to very long-standing <laughs> social relations. Um, you certainly see that through the Black movement, for example, right? This denunciation of Brazil's myth that it was a racial democracy and basically saying that like abolition may have happened in 1888, but like how can you say that people are free when they continue to be poor and continue to be repressed by the police? Um, and so... You know, there's this explicit challenge in the social movements that arose during the military dictatorship to an entire unjust system, not just to specific policies, but to an entire system that has a very small hereditary white elite at the top and then everybody else at the bottom. And the fact that some politicians then and some politicians now are on board with that and are, to some extent, okay with or even, you know, agree with these sorts of demands. That's the big change between 1945 to 64 and everything that's happened since the 70s and 80s. Can you comment on questions of race and racism in Brazil? What light does your book shed on race and racism in Brazilian history? And so I guess the last question was a good segue into this one. Um, so the book does take, I would say, in some places, I want to get into this whole like traditional Marxist binary between 
um, between class and, and other forms of identity, right? Um, but just because oftentimes my sources, um, they take much more of a class-based lens. You know, I, I try to look, for example, at like what the racial composition was um, in the student movement or in universities in the late 1960s and couldn't find any data because for the most part, universities weren't even collecting racial data, right? And so sometimes it's hard to see what, what role race plays. Um, but it is possible to get it through less quantifiable ways, right? And so you know, it's undeniable. And this is still the case, although much less so than it was then. You know, Congress was overwhelmingly white. I think even as late as 1982, you know, there may have been half a dozen, a dozen people in Congress who identified as Black. Um, today, that's well over 100. Um, there may, uh, you know, the political elite was well, was overwhelmingly white today. They're still majority white, but less, but less, less of a majority than they used to be. Um, and like all, this entire system of like, we are better than you because we have more money, because we have more education. There's also a lot of um, implicit racial bias that goes into this too. They would never say it because in Brazil, it violates everything that Brazil is supposed to be about. But there's this implicit, we are better than you because we are white and you are not. Um, and that's what continues to come up. And so Nope, I don't think anybody would ever admit to this in Brazil because you can't in Brazil. But racial, consciously or unconsciously, but often kind of hiding, um, when politicians see themselves as inferior, when they are when they are worried about the popular about the popular classes, it's a socioeconomic question. Yes, it's also a racial question. And it goes like I said earlier, all the way back to slavery, where the people who have all the money and have all the power, all white. And they are presiding over a society where almost all the people serving them and waiting on them are black. There's this iconic image from the 2016 protest, 2015 protest before the Workers' Party was removed from power in the impeachment of 2016. It's from Rio. And so this white family dressed in their Brazilian soccer, soccer jerseys um, with their little um, with their little like Pomeranian or something going to the protest. And behind them, their black maid dressed in a white maid's uniform is pushing their kids in the baby buggy. Right. And it's sort of like the iconic image of those protests showing the extent to which those protests were largely protests of the white elite who were you know, quite disconcerted by the fact that they're, you know, the black and brown help in their thinking. Are, are starting to become a little too assertive, right? Um, and so race is ne is almost never explicitly there, but it's there. And it it continues to be there today in the attitudes that Brazilian political elites and just the socioeconomic elite more generally, the, the upper classes, the middle and upper classes um, have towards anyone who is not white. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? What have you worked on since it's been over. So um, the so, some of my more recent publications and one that I'm co-authoring right now with several colleagues um, have turned specifically to, um, to the relationship between Brazil and the United States. Um, and in particular, um, what I'm working on right now um, relates to the process by which Dilma Rousseff was removed from power in, 2000, in 2016 and Lula was imprisoned on trumped up corruption charges in 2016 and looking at the extent to which this was, um, to which the United States had a role on this. Um, there is evidence, I mean, it, it's, it has been proven historically, the United States had a significant role in the coup of 1964. Um, it was largely a Brazilian affair, but the United States was very much supportive of it. And one reason it could move forward was because they knew they had the support of the US ambassador and by extension of the Kennedy administration. 
Um, in 2016, when let's keep in mind, Barack Obama was president still, not Donald Trump at the time. Um, but for the previous years, there had been these anti-corruption investigations in Brazil called Operation Lava Jato, or Car Wash, um, which had gone after largely Workers' Party politicians, although the, everybody was, a lot of people were implicated in it. Um, and so, and, and, and there was a lot of collaboration between the Lava Jato task force task force and the U.S. Department of Justice, um, forms of collaboration that are actually illegal in Brazil, as far as like um, evidence sharing without going through a formal process and stuff like that. Um, and so the argument we make in the article is that, um, you know, Brazil had become increasingly assertive under the Workers' Party on the world stage di um, diplomatically, oftentimes not aligned with the United States. Um, there had been a discovery of these massive offshore oil deposits in 2008 or 2009. Um, and this was sort of concerning to the United States, who, let's keep in mind, I mean, not to sound cynical, I think it's true, like, what orients U.S. foreign policy is not whether a country is democratic or not, it's not whether a country is corrupt or not, is whether that country will do what the United States tells them, which is why we hate Iran, but we love Saudi Arabia, right? Because the Saudis are, you know, aligned with U.S. policy. Um, Brazil is often not aligned with U.S. policy. And so the argument of the article that's going to come out is that um, the United States was involved in the process that removed the Workers' Party from power and placed um, first Michel Temer and then later Jair Bolsonaro in power after Lula was um, unjustly was unjustly imprisoned um, and installed a government that was much more pliant and much more um, in tune with the interest of the United States. Thank you. I'm so fortunate to have had this time in dialogue with you today. I wish you the best of luck in your subsequent research and can hardly thank you enough for all the erudition you shared with us during the course of today's conversation and dialogue. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you today and talk about and to talk about the book. Thank you. As we end, I'm signing off by reminding you that I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network's New Books in Latin American Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Brian Pitts. He is Assistant Director of the Latin American Institute at the University of California at Los Angeles. We have been discussing his newly published book, Until the Storm Passes, Politicians, Democracy, and the Demise of Brazil's Military Dictatorship, published in Berkeley by University of California Press 2023. Thank you. Thank you so much.